Are you staining the carpet already? It's seltzer. It's lifting the stains as we speak. Can you spill the seltzer towards one of the coffee stains? Maybe they can. Get a new square. Well, thank you guys for joining us tonight. Roger, there's premium seating up here, or else next to Rhoda. She'd like. I can slide. This actually works pretty well because I forget people are here. So, <laughs> so tonight's um, problem with Christianity is a little bit different. Um, it's not per se as cut and dry as like the problem of evil or Jesus or science, um, but it is the problem of Christians. And as we're talking about objections to the faith. I don't know if you guys have ever heard, well, just, ugh, Christians, I can't, I don't, I can't believe because of you guys. How are we the problem? How would we be an objection to someone? Ronald. I had someone tell me once that religion was the cause for all war and major conflict throughout human history, and I said, actually... Someone doesn't know their history very well, but that is a very, very common rebuttal. Christians what else? are accused of um, hating and uh, being intolerant. Yes, Christians are accused of being hateful, intolerant bigots. Yep. Yes. What else? What other things have we heard? What is the problem with us Christians? There's, there's so many different churches... Yep. Denominations. Yep. There's a seat up here, Sandra. Uh, so many different denominations, different ways Christians. Of expressing belief, yep. Uh, you know, and, and conflict Hi. amongst ourselves. You don't mind if I move yep. Yep. True. Very true. Anybody else? Any other? Let's think of a, yeah. another problem. And they say that we judge people. We judge people all the time. Yes. Yes. Us holy rollers. Like who are you? They, we, they, they say what we do is judge them. Right. They feel looked down upon because of us right. Christians. Right? Yeah, so it might be a little painful, but we do need to take a look at in the mirror and see how we are actually ourselves maybe contributing to an objection to the faith. Um, again, we hit some public perceptions of Christians, and, and we can see clearly how this hurts our apologetic how it actually can become a stumbling block to someone and their perceptions of Christians. And when we, we talk about Christians, we really talk about evangelical Christians, right? That's kind of become the word, right? You know, you evangelicals. What is an evangelical? Are we evangelical? This is not a trap, don't worry. Isn't even, yep, well, yeah, it's from the Greek, which definitely means good news. Yep, so evangelical would be someone who is sharing the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ, definitely. What other things come to mind when we think of evangelical? Maybe take yourself out of your Christian brain for a moment and uh, think like your liberal neighbor or something. <laughs> when he thinks of an evangelical, what does he think of? Somebody always trying to hit me over the head with the Bible. Okay. <laughs> Somebody always trying to hit me over the head with the good news of Jesus, that right. you could be saved from hell. That's terrible, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Is the public perception... Somebody going to say yeah, that? Yeah, I was just going to say, before the word evangelical was popular, it was the word fundamentalist was popular. So fundamentalist, yep. Hand in hand. Yep. To, Clinging to those fundamentals of the faith. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, what is the public perception, again, of an evangelical? Think it's good? No. Might not be so good. Um, Nancy Piercy, who wrote a great book called Total Truth, which I've referenced quite often, um, defines an evangelical Christian, if I can read it, in 256. She says this, so what does the term mean? American historians typically use it in a more technical sense to refer to a movement that grew out of the First and Second Great Awakenings, embracing a revivalist style of preaching and an emphasis on personal conversion. Because it was a renewal movement within the church, its goal was not so much to convert non-believers as to enliven the faith of nominal believers and bring individuals to a subjective experience of the saving truths of the gospel. So 
It's historically based, which we'll talk about in a minute. This guy, Thomas Kidd, and I'm going to be giving away his book at the end of the night to the best student of the evening. He says, it defines born-again Protestants who cherish the Bible as the Word of God and who emphasize a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's one of our evangelical favorite things to say, right? A personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? That's like one of our, one of our things, right? So specifically when we talk about us, we talk about evangelical Christians, right? So let's talk about a little bit of where they came from, right? So it does have its roots in the first and second great awakenings. And if you remember back, America was just being formed and it wasn't even fully settled yet. The traditional churches, which were the monopolies, the Presbyterians, and all of those kind of people, the Anglicans especially from uh, the UK, right? The monopoly churches, the mainline churches, were getting lazy and they were getting liberal. And in come the Baptists and the Methodists, those crazy Baptists. And they're on a roll with the New America. So the Baptists and the Methodists have a field day with the New America. I know this is a little bit of history, but... I like history, and I know some guys in here like history, too. So this is what Nancy writes about. Uh, the question facing Christian churches, then, was how do you make an effective religious appeal to such uncivilized, rough-hewn people? So these are the people out on the frontier, right? They got nothing. They got no schools. They got no churches. They got, they got their whiskey. They got their rifles, and they got, that's about it, right? It's just them. How do you bring religion to Dodge City? And the answer is you do exactly what the Methodists and Baptists did in the revival movements. You grab people by the throat, not literally, with an intense emotional experience to persuade them of the power of the supernatural. And then you tell them to stop drinking and stop shooting each other and live straight. This kind of intense emotional conversion experience is exactly what the camp meetings of the First and Second Great Awakenings aim to produce. No profound teaching, no high church ceremonies, no theological subtleties, no solemn hymns. Instead, the revivalists use simple vernacular language and catchy folk tunes delivered with lively theatrics to catch people's attention and move their emotions. Evangelical preachers broke with the older pattern of sermons to instruct and used their sermons to press hearers to the point of a crisis in order to produce a conversion experience. Instead of talking about a gradual growth in faith through participation in the church, evangelicals <clears throat> began to treat a one-time conversion event as the only sufficient basis for claiming to be a Christian. Do we see similarities to today? In the 1700s and the 1800s? <laughs> right? So that's where a lot of these things that maybe some of us know and, and hold so dear, it, it has deep historical roots. In, in the United States, especially when people were settling into all of these frontier places, right? So, yeah, the high church people, they weren't going to go out to the frontier. Presbyterians, no way, forget it. I'm, I'm not going out there. So the Baptists and the Methodists went out to the frontier, and they changed everything about how church was done. Emphasis was placed on, as we read, the emotion a conversion experience, right? Creating this spiritual crisis and this tension so that you could get people, you know, using music and smoke machines and lasers. Well, they didn't have that back then, but if they did, they would have used that too. Completely different experience, right? Um, however, the problem kind of comes in, and we'll see where this comes in, that unlike the traditional preachers, so if you're a Presbyterian guy, you say, I want to be a, a pastor, Great. You go to college for four years, and then you go to seminary for probably another four years, and then you go to ordained, and then you get all that stuff and licensed, and then, okay, fine, you can go preach, right? If you're a Baptist on the frontier and you got saved yesterday, guess what you're doing today? You're preaching. Whatever, with whatever knowledge you know, you're out there and you're preaching. No oversight, no doctrine, no accountability, right? Just you and trying to create these kind of tent revival kind of scenarios, right? So that's kind of the first part. The, the roots of evangelicalism were in the first and second great awakenings. In the 20th century, evangelicalism becomes increasingly more political. In the early 1900s, we had the fundamentalist modernist controversy coming to a head with the, uh, the Scopes trial. 
Anybody besides Rhoda know what the Scopes trial is? Or Ronald Bob? The monkeys. The monkeys. <laughs> the monkey trial. Not monkey pox. The monkey trial. Yeah, so Scopes was a science teacher in Tennessee who violated a recent law prohibiting the teaching of evolution in public schools. And then this guy, William Jennings Bryant, took the stand in defense of the Bible. And as legend tells, he lost miserably. And so people's opinion of Christians at that point went really, really to an all-time low because this guy was getting bested on the, the, on, the, on the witness stand about the truths of the Bible, which I tried to find out what actually those questions were, and you can't find them. Supposedly they're expunged from whatever court records are. So there's various rumors of what those questions actually were. I wanted to know like what he got stumped on and why it was so bad. So that was kind of a blow to Christians when we come up against what's being taught in the schools and we kind of lose so badly about that. Uh, in the 1980s, anybody else alive in the 1980s? In the 1980s, the moral majority, bring any bells, they pushed an evangelical agenda through politics, particularly in the Republican Party. And of course, we can still see that today. In 2016, it's supposed to supposedly 81% of evangelicals voted for Mr. Donald Trump, right? 81% supposedly. So you better believe people know that that's a powerful voting block, right? Um, and in many ways, a lot of people, the first thing they think of when they think of an evangelical Christian is a white Republican, right? I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of a shocking statement, but I think that's, pretty accurate of what people would think. Right? So that's what's in the 20th century. It becomes increasingly political. Uh, and then kind of today, we still see kind of the megachurch hangover. The megachurch culture bred a consumeristic faith. What's it, what do I mean by consumeristic faith? Tell them what they want to hear. Tell them people what they want to hear, okay. What's that? <laughs> praise, praise the Lord and pass the plate. Praise the Lord and pass the plate. <laughs> That's what I thought of evangelicals in the 1980s. Oh, well, okay. The PTL movement. There you go. Well, that's yeah. a really good perspective. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, you, you do. I kind of miss that whole television age, right? You know? I was See? thinking more along the lines of people who attend church just to feel good and, uh, and, and consume the, the, and be entertained yeah. and then leave. Yeah. Exactly. Or what they and can get out of it. So right. many options. Or what they can get out of it. What they can get out of it. Church hopping and church shopping. Mm -hmm. Right? You go to one church, you're like, well, I didn't really like the worship in that. You go to another church, it's like, yeah, that was good. I didn't like the coffee. <laughs> I heard the other church has really good coffee, so we'll go there. And it's a, well, this church has really good kids programs, so maybe we should try to go there. Or, you know, just didn't really get anything out of that church. You know? So it, it, it really becomes a consumeristic, and it is church your way, and it is where, you know, uh, seeker-friendly churches are trying to figure out the mind of, like Ken said, what do people want? Like, you know, when they walk in the door, what's going to make them feel comfortable, and how can we provide that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ron. I once had to play a David Bowie song on stage for Sunday morning. Oh, <laughs> Never again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was against it, but I was out for it. You were against it. would be okay. That's okay. Bon Jovi was not a prayer, right? Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're, talk, we're talking about something for real. Like no, I, heard, I heard it was not, not that we attended it. I heard it you the heard guys on the radio. Living on a prayer? They had like a living on a prayer series at one of these churches. Like, yeah, well, that, that's a great example, right? A consumeristic too mentality is a seeker mentality. He's going to find out what the people want to hear and what should I preach you know, and so sure, I'll do series on movies. Yeah. I'll do series on, you know, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. Or <laughs> yeah, so you kind of see that. Anybody ever been part of a big church like that? Bon kind of, yeah. yeah, Ron. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty big. It got pretty big. I, I haven't been, but I, I've been around them enough to see it. You know, it's, uh, it's, so it's a bit of a culture shock for me. But, and I also think it's kind of a Northeast thing. 
like Ron's experience was definitely down south, and so if you, if you get past the Mason-Dixon line, you know, they grow big down there, big churches and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so yeah, so this is where we end up for evangelicalism, you know, roots in emotionalism and roots in kind of that uh, private conversion experience, right? We got the politics mixed in there, and then you kind of get to today where you're, you're so this is what people's perception kind of seems to be. Well, let's look at some pros. I mean, because it's not all bad, right? So some pros to this kind of evangelical movement, right, is number one, fervent evangelism. Like, they were preaching the gospel and are preaching the gospel, right? And so people technically were getting saved, um, not exactly sure how well they knew the gospel, or I can't speak and paint with a broad brush, but at the bare basics of the gospel were being saved, and hopefully it's repentance and faith. And so they had fervent evangelism, right? They also had good works, right? We should include, I shouldn't say they, I should say we, because we're all part of this, right? We have good works. We're helping the poor. We're helping orphans. We're even in the 17 and 1800s, right? Christians were the ones that were fighting for equality of slave, with slaves and fighting to free the slaves and stuff. So you start to see these things come out of this mostly. evangelical camp. Yeah, mostly. There are a lot of people that we'll talk about in a little while that didn't quite read their Bibles so well, right? So you did have good works as another positive thing that was happening. And, and lastly, it did bring emotion into the church, right? Back then, from what legend tell, you'd have a guy who would stand there in the Anglican church or the Presbyterian church in a robe, and he would read a sermon, never looking up for upwards of an hour, you know? And I think if I did that, you guys would throw stuff at me or something. <laughs> but it brought this kind of new air, this freshness to the church, for better or for worse, right? Yeah. There's a great book by Dinesh D'Souza that I recommend called What's So Great About Christianity. It's not political, even though he's kind of a pundit. It's yeah, pretty much a treatise on the historicity of Christian ethics. Okay. And some of the things that would go along with this would be uh, our country's laws were based on the Ten Commandments, the hospital system, orphanages. Oh, yeah. All of these things are positive consequences of the church in action. Yeah. Yeah, whoever got that book, I can't remember who got the Confronting Christianity book last week. But she has a great chapter on that, Rebecca McLaughlin does. Because that's one of the questions you'll see is, you know, is Christianity, they've done so much evil in this world. And it's like, au contraire. It's like, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of higher education universities. We wouldn't have a lot of hospitals, you know. It's another thing, you go down south, like every hospital is a Baptist hospital. So that's weird. I'm used to Catholic hospitals for years. So yeah, so there were some pros to it. Um, before I, well, you guys have notes, but I try to get discussion going, and then I realize you guys have some of the answers, right? What about some cons? Of course, if we go too far to one side, we're going to then lack in the other side. And so too much focus on emotion and conversion experience came at the expense of doctrine. Right, so if you're if you're pushing, if the whole thing is just about emotion, if the whole thing is just about that moment of conversion, right, asking Jesus into your heart, you know, whatever it is, right, that that is going to come most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, at an expense of actual doctrine. And if you don't have that, you don't have a firm root. If you don't have that, you don't have a firm root. And so you can kind of see why we're in the situation that we're in today. Because that's exactly what the fruit is being manifested, is you don't have those deep roots, right? It also, another con, it planted seeds for anti-intellectualism. Did I have that there? Oops, sorry. Anti-intellectualism. What do I mean by anti-intellectualism? Biblical illiteracy. <laughs> illiteracy. I like that. That's a huge problem in, in uh, evangelical Christianity. People don't know their Bibles. They haven't read their Bibles cover to cover, and uh, they don't know what it means, right? And they can't interpret it, right? Voice uh, said in the Puritan times, the Puritan Jews had 12 point sermons, and Voice said, I, I'm lucky if I can get them a bottle of four point sermons. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they, it, illiteracy, biblical illiter literacy. Yeah. People, um, 
Yeah, I mean, the Puritans would write entire books on one verse. They just, they just ring it out for every possible nugget they, they could. Yeah. But yeah, anti-intellectualism, certainly biblical illiteracy, uh, but also just an aversion to, I, I don't, you know, don't want to study. I don't want to read. I don't want to grow deeper in these doctrines. I don't want to know these theological words. You know, I just want to have that feeling. Church. I don't want to go to church and sit there a sermon. Oh. I think there's just like a, an avoidance and apologetics overall. Yeah. With it, you know? yeah. Uh, they just they promote like not engaging in conversations with anyone about it. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, what's the excuse is? Oh well, it's not up to me. God change our hearts. Like that's it. Yeah. But like you still have to play yeah. a part in helping them understand like what the word says. You know what I mean? Yep. Like that's, that's your job. <laughs> yeah, so you kind of tap out a little bit yeah. when the going gets tough, and yeah. or maybe you don't even want to try at all. Right. Right. And, and engage in a conversation with somebody about some of the deeper things. Right. Yeah, Ro. Well, I was just thinking, it's really easy to manufacture experience, whereas true study actually involves work. <laughs> <laughs> so that whole movement was just about creating the next experience for you to experience, and much less about the actual working towards understanding the deeper roots. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. Creating experience is easy. In our day, just black out the windows and you know spend a million dollars on the lights and everything else and get a good band and you know, I didn't mean anything about that. <laughs> and, you know, play the Hillsong and the Bethel and everything else and and you know it should be fine. Yeah. I would say like a lot of times you hear Christians say like they're so on fire for God because they go to some really emotionally driven. Yeah crazy concert event and then they go home like oh like yeah. they don't get that and it's yeah. a lot of times because they were focused so much on that experience that they're not like, you could be just as on fire with God if you read the Bible okay? exactly yeah yeah that 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 definition somehow got worked yeah. where being on fire for God meant that you were emotional or you're charismatic or you were whatever mm-hmm. you know uh, even evangelistic right but if you're kind of misguided in that a white so just because right, you, you read books with old dead guys in them and your soul is filled and everything else, that you can't be on fire for God. Do that? I could, you know, where the scales are tipped you know, the other way. So, yeah, and the world sees that, right? Because the world, and guys, the world's getting smarter in, in a lot of ways and certainly more theologically astute because now we've got a whole generation of these deconverting evangelical Christians, right? So they know just enough to be dangerous, Right? And so these are the people that we're talking to and trying to just and trying to untangle all this mess from of what Christianity actually says. Right? So yeah, there's a definite anti-intellectual. And you'll feel that. Like people will mock you. Like you're a you're a simple-minded Christian. Oh, oh little Christian. Like, you know, you don't think very deep thoughts. It's okay. Just, you know, saying Jesus loves me and everything will be fine. Um, it also stressed an individualistic faith. You're going to lose some of those. An individualistic faith. What's an individualistic faith? Pick and choose what? What I want to believe. What you want to believe. Okay, yeah, theological smorgasbord. Yep. Pick the doctrines you like. You can go total Thomas Jefferson, just cut out the stuff you don't like. Right? Reading scripture and, and saying, well, this is what it means to me versus this is what it says. Yeah. Like Isaac Jesus versus. Yeah. Angela, you had your hand up too. Yeah. Uh, it, it sounds like a very me-centered religion. Yep. Uh, where it's all about the person and not about like what benefits God. Yep. That's plays right into our yeah. selfism worldview. Like the right? prosperity gospel <clears throat> idea, yep. where it's like uh, God is going to give me that everything that benefits me and yep. not benefits him. Yeah, like making your own god type of thing. Like making a, your own god, sure. Like a build a god. Thing. Build a god, <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a theological uh, buffet yeah, there. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Ron. Moral relativism and universalism. Yeah. So the idea that uh, morality is not really dictated to me by the book; it's whatever I want it to be. Yeah. And universalism that you know, hey, everybody just gets saved, right? In the end, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's definitely that inward-facing kind of, also you're kind of siloed, right, in that, in that sense, too. And uh, another one that was really rooted in the history of evangelicalism, another con, is celebrity pastors. Mm-hmm. You know? 
Um, I like me some Whitfield as much as the next guy, Bridget. And, uh, sorry, I got distracted. But Whitfield was pretty much the first celebrity, right? And you get a guy like Edwards, too. Like, Whitfield was a rock star. Like, the guy couldn't go anywhere preaching in the 17 and 1800s without thousands and thousands of people showing up. And so, right then and there, that started to shift between not just the church and where we're going, right? But now I'm attracted to a personality and a person. And so, and then with that, you have things like marketing, right? Before he came to town or others came to town, they're like, hey, we got to advance this. We got to start printing up flyers and we got to start getting people going and we got to get the tent set up, you know, a month ahead of time so people get talking about it. And, you know, we got to start using techniques. How can we draw the most? This, this is the way people were thinking in the first and second great awakenings, right? And that's only continued today. So, the celebrity pastors seeds were definitely planted as well. And then also probably another con uh, we could say would be misguided political reform. Uh, and I'll just put it like that, misguided political reform. Now that doesn't mean that we don't speak out against evil in culture, right? That doesn't mean we don't fight against abortion. That doesn't mean we don't fight for a biblical morality. But there's a difference between fighting for a biblical morality and trying to hold a culture to a biblical morality that they never claimed that they were adhering to. Right? And so that's a lot of tension where somebody said, like, you're trying to shove that down my throat. Right? Instead of then intellectually engaging with these arguments as to why abortion's wrong, we're just going to say abortion's wrong. And we're going to pick it and we're going to you know, do whatever else we're going to do. And that sometimes gets a little bit misinformed, right? It's, it's kind of that misunderstanding that America is a Christian nation. It's not a Christian nation. Maybe at one time it was more Christian than it wasn't, but it's certainly not now. And so we've got to come to that realization, too, that we can't necessarily hold people to a biblical morality that they, don't, they, didn't, they never signed up for. Right? And, and really, they're against it at this point. So, and, and people see that. People still see that today. And that's why we're doing things like this, apologetically to engage with these issues on a deeper level than just boycotting or you know, pushing back or trying to hold people to a morality. So let's get a little bit deeper and talk about how specifically these things play out. Right? So how we made apologetics more difficult. And we talked about the privatization of faith. So that's the first one, privatization of faith. We have the focus on individual spiritual experience, the private interpretation of scripture, like we said. And what happened then is faith became all about us more individualistic and less about church. So it became individualistic and less church-centered. became our individual faith or walk. Right? And our, our friends, the Christian music and the Christian publishing industries didn't help us out here, right? Because everything then is geared, you start to see it towards how many different devotional Bibles do we have? Like the left handed crossing guard devotional Bible, like the fireman's devotional Bible, or this, you know, it's just like, okay, I get it, you know? <laughs> right? And so they're targeting individuals as opposed to. Uh, maybe supplying the church, right? We, of course, have Christian celebrities. We have Christian influencers on social media, right? These men and women with millions of followers on Instagram, you know, again, talking about their personal walk with Jesus, which isn't a bad thing, but can be. Um, again, we have a proliferation of attractional and seeker churches. It gets more consumeristic in that sense, right? And sometimes people will be like, well, I go to... Bible study at this church, and I go to a singles group at this church, and I go to Sunday morning at this church, or something like that, and they're kind of losing the whole aspect of, it's not just me, right? I'm supposed to be connected to a local church. So some net effects from that, what I call Lone Ranger Christianity, right? The idea that I don't really know if I need a church. It's just me. I don't really feel the priority to go to church on a Sunday morning. Uh, maybe I make it if it fits in with my schedule, 
right? But other than that, you know, except for you guys, because you're in a, here on a Wednesday night, so <laughs> you get double Jesus points. And some of you guys were some of you guys were at Bible study this morning, so that's like triple. That's like triple Jesus point Wednesday going on right here. Yeah, but Lone Ranger Christianity, we're we're not designed to be on our own. We can't be on our own. We're designed to be in a community of believers to help us, to inform us, to keep us accountable. Right. And COVID didn't help that. COVID really, really didn't help that. And now we kind of have the COVID hangover, which is like, well, I'll use the live stream option. I just, uh, we just had a busy day yesterday. I'm just really tired. So sorry if anybody's done that. <laughs> sorry, not sorry if anybody's done that, right? But it becomes like, you know, that's my out. I can do it. We have the live stream. It's great. We're going to continue to have the live stream for people who can't make it out. And let's face it, there are people in that situation as well. Why is it every time during midweek I hit all my three rings? It's just so sad. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, there's a downplaying of church membership and the responsibility of a member. Like it's kind of like church gets optional, and membership gets optional, and church and membership is not optional for a Christian. It's part of the New Testament. Um, another effect of privatization, right? We have a, we have this resistance to kind of the churchy religion. We have the pushback against uh, the creeds, the pushback against. The hymns, the pushback against the pews and the guys in suits and all of that stuff. And that really took off in the 80s, right? As soon as Rick Warren stood up there in his khaki pants and his Hawaiian shirt, like everybody just lost their minds, right? It was just like, we can do that in church. And then once the 90s hit and new restless and reform came, we had skinny jeans and we had pastors, these scarves. It's just uh, it got really, really bad. Right? Yeah, we're, we're past that point now, I hope and I pray, but I still see crazy things, right? And that's prevalent in the rise of the megachurch. All the way up to today, you see that. And uh, if any of you saw the Hillsong documentary, hide all the sharp objects if you do watch the Hillsong documentary. Um, we have whole Instagram channels about preachers and preachers and sneakers and everything that they wear, pricing every single thing on their outfits. So it's just like, what? How is this possible, right? So you have this religion. But we're kind of, we kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, fine, cool, wear jeans. Okay, great, right? But if you're pushing back and you're losing the creeds, if you're losing church history, if you're losing the solid theology and the hymns for the Jesus is my boyfriend songs, you know, what else are we losing here, right? And all that's playing into our maturity. We have squishy man-centered teaching, right? Again, somebody said it. What, if, what does scripture mean to me as opposed to what it actually means? Um, another aspect of privatization, we have an oversimplification sometimes of, of complicated doctrinal problems. Like you can't just gloss over, like we said last time, uh, the problem of evil and suffering with a, a pithy little saying. It's not going to work. These, these are huge problems. And so kind of sometimes with this privatization, we start to think like, you know, in more simplistic, me-centered terms, right? We have lots of Christianese slogans. God won't give you more than you can handle. Right? He's going to give you more than you can handle. <laughs> That's the point. So you rely on Him. Right? Let go and let God. We can do this all night. Right? <laughs> what? Jesus, Jesus take the wheel. Jesus take the wheel. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right? If you're in theology, there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, if you're in a trial, right, well, that's because God is preparing something better for you, right, Tom? If he didn't give you this, it's because he's got something much better for you down the line. You know, you can go on and on and on, right? But if everything becomes about us, then we start clinging to not the theology of the historic Orthodox Church. We start clinging to these pithy little sayings of how we're going to make it through, right? So privatization definitely has a lot of, a lot of baggage that comes along with it. But any other thoughts on that of... You know, we could say pros too, pros or cons of privatization of faith. Caleb. Well, a pro of it is that it, the Catholic Church sort of had the, well, if you attend the Catholic Church and you say these things and you do this and you do the whatever, yeah. then you're good. Right. The privatization of the faith 
got away from that and said, no, 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 you're not you just coming here. Does that doesn't count? Right. Yeah. That's a, yeah. a good okay. thing, but it swung really far the other direction. Yep. Yeah. Real. I was thinking a probably unforeseen pro that happened was um, a lot of the mega churches and and, uh, and larger churches started having uh, in the 80s and 90s even basic PTL or TBN things and. It's funny how many Christians I know that started off just because of exposure yeah. to those things that ended up actually growing roots through it afterwards. So maybe it, it started off on a weird platform yep. in the beginning, but it ended up mass exposing people to options. Yep. That's good. Ron, it's another pro or con? It's a con. It's impossible to calculate the image that Word of Faith and Prosperity Preaching, guys like Kenneth Hagin, have just done to the yeah. image of faith. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. That's kind of, as we, as somebody said, like that's a definite, huge uh, outgrowth, bad fruit of a privatization of faith or a me-centered faith is the prosperity gospel, right? I'm in this for the blessings, right? I was thinking of a, of a pro, too. I think we kind of were, were all around it a minute ago, but just devotional time, right? Our own private devotional time. Just mm-hmm. us and the Lord and, and a cup of coffee and... Praying and our Bible and all of that stuff—that that is a critical aspect of our, you know, there are private spiritual disciplines, right? That maybe uh, a privatization of faith was kind of a good thing. It was kind of a, a propulsion into that, right? Of course, now before we start our quiet time, we have to take a picture and put it on Instagram so that everybody knows we are, we are having our quiet time. Of course, just me and Jesus. Hashtag Devo. Yeah. All right, so second one, how we're not helping ourselves. Hypocrisy is an, opgro- an outgrowth. What is hypocrisy? Saying one thing, doing another. Saying one thing, doing another. It's one of, the, one of the things that people think of immediately when they think of Christians is hypocrites. Which is what right. Sue Lazar said online when you asked, how do Christians hinder? Oh, good job, Sue. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when you say one thing, when you, when you live another, right? Hypocrisy is a huge outgrowth, a negative outgrowth, and how we've gotten in our own way uh, for apologetics uh, in that. Yeah, Caleb. Well, that's everybody, though. Yeah? Because nobody can, even, even secular people, if you hold a, an idea, you're not going to live up to the idea. That's just the nature of it being an ideal. Yeah. And a different definition that I've heard thrown around is that it's holding two separate standards, one for yourself and one for everyone else. It's not like, oh, I have an ideal and I fail to meet it. It's, well, this is okay for me to do, but you better do this. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and that's a really good one. Um, and along with that, too, when we do, when we are called out, when we know that we've not upheld that standard, right, we need to just admit it instead of just trying to cover it up. That just makes hypocrisy all the worse when we just ignore it. Like, everybody knows you sinned, but we're not going to talk about it. Right. We're going to sweep it under the carpet. That's, that's hypocrisy, right? Um, this is in two areas. We have church leaders, the hip- hypocrisy that we see now, and we have individuals. But the church leaders, the unfortunate mega church celebrity pastor downfall is in full swing. You know, we've got the Hillsong collapse. We've got the Mars Hill collapse. But again, in evangelical non-denominational land, right, you get fired from one church, but then you can just go plant another church, right? And that's happened, right? Mm-hmm. Look at Driscoll. Look at Tillian. Look at Perry Noble. Jim like, Baker. What? Jim Baker. Jim Baker. Did he go to jail too? Yes, yeah, like a prison and started a church afterwards. There you go. <laughs> just start that up, right? So there's a there's a lack of accountability that we've got to fess up to, right? Some, there are some people that just shouldn't be in ministry, but yet somehow they still are, right? And our opponents know that, and they're going to find them. So there's hypocrisy in church leaders. There's hypocrisy, of course, in individuals, which we just talked about a second ago. Like, how, are our, how is our actual life, is that a good platform for us apologetically? Are we living the life that we claim to live? And are we owning it when we don't? Right? And the net effect of hypocrisy is that the world's going to see an unbiblical version of Christianity. And that's really, really hard because then we've got to untangle all that when we're talking about apologetics because they think Christianity's headed in this direction and we're going, no, that's not, well, that's all I've seen. It's like, okay, well, 
that's not what the truth is, right? We've got to back up and unpack all that. So hypocrisy is definitely a way we get in our own way. Another big way we get in our own way is uh, a disconnect from historical orthodox apostolic Christianity. What do I mean by historical? Old dead guys. Old dead guys. <laughs> Actual people that existed, right? Things in the past that actually happened, right? What, what do I mean by apostolic? Caleb knows this because we talked about it on Sunday. What's, what's, what do I mean by apostolic Christianity? Is that the original apostles? Yeah. You got traced through the original apostles, right? right. And then orthodox. Not, not the modern day apostles. No, capital A, <laughs> dead apostles, right? No, not the newer no apostolic. Right? Yeah, no, definitely. Just to be clear. Exactly. Good, good, good clarification. There are no modern day apostles. Yeah. But then also orthodox. What do I mean by orthodox? Is that original as well? Orthodox? Is that an original church doctrine? It's original church doctrine that they said was correct. Right? So there actually is a standard. There's an orthodox. If there's an orthodoxy, that's what's right. And, and if it's in con contradiction to that, then it's wrong. So there, there actually is something that's right and something that's wrong. There actually is sin and there's actually not sin. There are actually things that God calls us to and doctrines that are true in the Bible and there's not. Right? And you will get people, I had an atheist troll on my blog, and as soon as I said that, you know, we hold to historical, orthodox, apostolic Christianity, she laughed and was like, that doesn't exist. But it does. It really, really does. It really, really does. And we can trace it through history. So the net effects of this is that we are less effective at the Great Commission. If we're disconnected from historical orthodox apostolic Christian doctrine, right? I may have forgotten the word doctrine there. We're less effective at the Great Commission. One quote, when the church has gone wrong in doctrine, she has ceased to be a converting influence. When the church has gone wrong in doctrine, she has ceased to be a converting influence. Right? Another net effect of this disconnect is that false ideas gain a foothold. And we just talked about that. Like People are like, well, which is Christianity? Because I see all these different versions of Christianity. Right? And false ideas get a foothold. Uh, our friend Machen said the greatest barrier to the gospel is false ideas. Mm -hmm. People have an understanding of what the gospel is, and it's wrong. Or they have an understanding of who Jesus was or who God was, and it's wrong. And where did they get that idea? A lot of times from Christians behaving badly. Right, so we've got, to, we've got to understand that. So we've got to undo a lot of biblical misunderstandings. Right. Another net effect from this disconnect is you have theological pendulum swings. If it's too strict on one side, you know, that hyper kind of, you know, everything's got to be exactly this specific ways, that's why we have 9,000 different denominations. Right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're too strict, you're going to have needless division over things that may not, probably be not, uh, primary issues. And it shows a lack of theological triage. What do I mean by theological triage? It's a very nerdy word. Caleb? It's when you separate the uh, issues that you need to be divided upon uh, versus the issues that you don't really need to dispute. You yep. can have differing opinions on, but you can still be Christian. Exactly. You decide what theological hill you're going to die on. You decide what theological hill you're going to die on. Right? Major issues versus minor. Yep. Major issues. What are the non-negotiable issues? You know, first order issues, second order issues, third order issues, and so there are plenty of denominations that split because of third order issues that they elevated way, way too high. Right. Um, but there are. Orthodox doctrinal issues, right? If you're going to say Jesus is not God, we're going to die on that hill, right? If you're going to say Jesus didn't need to die on the cross, we're going to die on that hill. Like, there are some things that are non-negotiable. The Trinity, all that stuff, those are first-order issues. Right? So, if, But if you swing that too, too strictly, you're going to get needless division. On the other hand, if you swing it too, swing it too loosely, you're, everything's going to be okay. Then you're just going to have liberalism. Right? You're going to have 
uh, ecumenicalism, where all denominations should just get along, right? Uh, you're going to have pragmatism, where whatever we have to do to get people in the door, that's what we're going to do, right? We're just results-focused. I feel like as individuals, we can be on a theological pendulum. You yeah. see it a lot with people who have like habits of church hopping. Yep. That they'll go from one theological extreme, and they might be in like three different churches like that, but then 10 years later, they're in three different churches that are the other theological extreme. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they might, they might sound really versed, like mm -hmm. well-versed in a lot of like theological topics because yeah. they're exposing themselves to a lot. But, you know, you prod them long enough with one, with one issue and yeah. they're easily swayed, yeah. you know? Yeah. And there, God still does things in us. He still grows and changes us. I had a friend who uh, was in seminary with and he was a Baptist seminary Baptist pastor and now he's a Presbyterian. Uh, oh, yeah. Ordained Presbyterian. Like, so God does change convictions of the heart. Right? Hopefully not about first order issues. But yeah, you're right. You can definitely um, have kind of a shaky foundation on some of those things and, and shift around a lot within that in that kind of continuum before you even realize it. It's like, oh, you're going to this church now? But they're... Uh, there's a portion, I think, in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about that where he says, uh, if you decide to celebrate the Jewish holidays... Yeah. Celebrate the Jewish holidays. If you decide not to, don't celebrate the Jewish holidays. But don't let anyone talk you into out yeah. of your convictions. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Yeah. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Right. Um. And another major, major net effect of this disconnect is we encounter sometimes dangerous errors. And somebody said it before, but one of the biggest ones we could think of probably immediately would be something like slavery. Right, where you had Bible-believing men who thought it was fine to own people based on the color of their skin, something like that. You know, where well, we've we've lost our moorings somewhere. You know, if if you're just going to have this idea of well, I need this to make my farm run or something or the economy run, like what's what's more important here, the word of God or or everything else? Right. So. You know, definitely, if we get disconnected from our, our roots, we can certainly drift into some pretty dangerous practical errors as well. All right, so let's talk in the minutes we have left about uh, what we can do to fix this. What can we do to fix my thing? There it goes. Number one, prioritize the local church. Of course you're going to say that, Pastor Mike. Yes, prioritize the local church above an individualistic faith. The church is God's plan A to reach the world, right? It's unfortunately not just us by ourselves, right? There's a huge proliferation of parachurch ministries, and sometimes I pick on parachurch ministries, and some of them are important, but some of them are really unnecessary, right? Because if the church was doing its job, right, there'd be a lot less parachurch ministries in the world. But it's God's plan A to reach the world, and again, while our faith is always personal, it's not meant to be private. We need to be sharing it with brothers and sisters in community. We need to be holding firm again to the historic apostolic orthodox faith. And that's actually within the pages of the Bible. Uh, in a few weeks, Elder Paul Fehrenbacher will be preaching on the great book of Jude. And in Jude 1 3, it says, Well, there's only one chapter in Jude. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about your common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We see little nuggets in Scripture like that. There's one faith, and it was delivered once, and it's here. Right? And we've that's what we've got to contend to. So we ought to prioritize the local church. That's what was done. That's what we've received. We've received the testimony. We've received the word of God. It's ours. We need to hold to it. We need to prioritize it. We've got to practice theological triage. We've got to practice unity in those things that are essential, right? And the things that maybe not, we've got to hold with a more open hand. And we've got to submit to biblical church leadership and membership and church discipline and accountability and things like that. It's another reason, let's face it, that people don't want to engage with the local church because it's like, I don't want people knowing my business. 
And I don't want them telling me how to run my business. Right? I don't want that accountability. But we need that accountability. So first thing we can do is prioritize the local church above an individualistic faith. Second one, seriously pursue holiness. We need to individually seriously pursue holiness. Again, a quote from Total Truth. A verbal presentation of a Christian worldview message loses its power if it's not validated by the quality of our lives. So we can learn all this stuff and how to respond to uh, the problem of evil, the problem of science, and all that stuff. But if our life, our life does not back up what we say, it's useless. Those people are going to see right through it. Great J.C. Ryle wrote in his book, Holiness, sound Protestant and evangelical doctrine is useless if it's not accompanied by a holy life. He says it's worse than useless. It does positive harm. So how do people get so jacked up in their understandings of Christianity from Christians that aren't focused on personal holiness? And believe me, I'm not saying I'm where I need to be in my personal holiness journey. I'm just saying it's encouragement for us all to pursue it. And Paul was where he wanted to be in his personal holiness. Thank you for that, Ken. You're welcome. I appreciate that. So, don't feel bad. <laughs> I wasn't, I'm with good company in the Apostle Paul. I've not yet attained what I wanted to attain, right? Yep. Yeah. I press on. I press on. Yes, absolutely. But again, I, I want to, it's almost like a little pause in the middle of our series here to just think, okay, let's not get so wrapped up in just like, how are we going to respond and this, this, and this, right? Let's, let's remember our lives are the biggest apologetic that we have and the quality of our lives. And holiness is number one, right? We as evangelical Christians, again, we still have that hangover. We still have that. It's all about the decision. It's all about justification by faith. It's all about all that stuff. Okay, and then we stop short of maybe the priority of sanctification, right? In the reality, sanctification is just as important as justification. It's the outcrop of that. It's how we live our lives, right? And Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, urges us to take back the term evangelical, to fight for it. And as the saying goes, semper reformanda, we are always reforming. We are continuing to reform the church not out of anything different than what God says in his word, but in continuance of that word. Number four, we need to reconnect again with the historic apostolic orthodox faith. Again, there is such a thing. And don't let people tell you otherwise. Somebody said it. Read the old dead guys. Read them. Get to know the church fathers. Get to know the creeds and confessions. Westminster and Heidelberg and all of that stuff. Read that stuff. Read the Reformers. Read church history. Most of this, if not all of it, is online and totally free, by the way. Just Google it. If you can read .7 font online, you know, you can increase it a little bit. But, you know, a lot of this stuff is online and for free because they have done a great job of cataloging all this stuff. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said again, a man who has no respect for history is a fool. And he will soon discover that when he finds himself repeating the errors of those who have gone before him. We are not going to discover any new heresies. We're really not. The heresies that people are committing today in their rebellion against God and their reasons for rejecting God have been repeated throughout history time and time again. So we need to gain knowledge and confidence from them as well. So reconnect with our historic faith. That's why we try to do things like say the creeds here. And we try to bring up as many old dead guys as we can. And last, uh, engage with humility. We need to engage with humility. Sometimes the best answer is, I don't know. We can't wrap up our Christian faith in nice, neat, little, tidy packages all the time. Right? Sometimes the best answer is, I don't know. But then find out. <laughs> but then research. But then go back and read the old dead guys. Go ask Bob, you know, the hard questions, right? Find an elder. Ask him. <laughs> You're obviously I'm alive. against the wall, but I'm still alive. <laughs> He's 
So have those apologetic conversations. Like we were saying before, don't back away from those conversations. Have them, but have them with humility. Don't get sucked into the argument, right? But talk about it. Engage with these people. Talk about ideas, but do it with humility. And sometimes we just got to say, I don't know. I don't know how it works. And we can find out some more, but this is what the Bible says, right? People are reacting to the Christians who want to try to wrap everything up in a nice, neat little package. It doesn't work for them anymore. They're like, that just doesn't make sense to me. Our God shouldn't make total sense to us. He's God's. And so we, we engage, but we engage with humility. So if I had a big idea, which I kind of do, be apologetically intentional in how you live. Be apologetically intentional in how you live. Because if we don't, we become a barrier to our own apologetics. Thoughts, comments, questions, disparaging remarks. Ronald. So I can't live my best life now? <laughs> this is your best life now. We gotta talk. <laughs> Joel Osteen, I think he's going to be in Yankee Stadium next month. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Free marketing. <laughs> that showed up on my Facebook feed. Really now good. It's going to because we're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, it's going to, we're talking about it now. Joel Osteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hit the Joel cube. Yes, does anyone, anyone, any other questions, comments, thoughts? A little bit different of a night tonight, but something to uh, definitely think yeah. about. Don't forget your book. Oh, book giveaway. Hold on. I need Joel's wisdom. <laughs> I declare you have the grace you need for today. You are full of power, strength, and determination. Yes! Nothing you face will be too much for you. You will overcome every obstacle, every challenge, and come through every difficulty better than you were before. Amen. Straight out of first speculations. All right, I have a book to give away. This book is, the title is Who is an Evangelical? Uh, now I will give this disclaimer, and they teach us this in seminary, and they beat it into our heads. You shouldn't always read books that you just agree with. You should read some books that you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I like the way he said that, because it makes you think. I, disclaimer, I don't agree with everything in this book. I'm not giving you false doctrine. I'm just saying <laughs> that there are some things in here that I don't agree with his analysis of. Um, it is kind of political, so if there is somebody who's a little more politically minded, but it's a very good read, and there's a lot of good things. He talks about a lot of the same things we talked about as the rise of evangelicals, but he brings it much farther into the damage that it's done and that sort of thing. So it is a good read, but if you want something a little edgy, what? Is it sort of a history book or no? There's a historical section. But yeah, I mean, well, yeah, actually it is. I would, I would say, I would classify it as, it's a, well, Here's the subtitle, Jen. So it's, it's the history of a movement in crisis. So yes. So, yeah, there you go. So, first person to raise their hand. Jen. Alrighty. Next week we've got the problem of exclusivity. There's just one way. It's so narrow-minded. Well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for tonight. Uh, thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. Thank you, um, Lord, for your word. Thank you for those that have come, uh, the apostles, the church fathers, uh, so many after us, Lord, uh, before us, after them. Pray that you would help us to uh, understand and cling to the faith that was once given for all the saints. Now help us to watch our own lives, to live intentionally uh, and apologetically in that intentional way, Lord, so that we won't get in our own way when we seek to um, give a defense 
for the reason, the, the hope that we have for our faith. And so we pray for that. Um, Lord, convict us where we need conviction and holiness. Um, and we pray that you will cause us, as we have these conversations, Lord, to have them in humility. And uh, Lord, be able to untangle really some of the damage that unfortunately uh, Christianity has done and how that makes our, our job of defending the faith uh, that much more difficult. Help us to be authentic, genuine representatives of Christ here in Sussex County. Bring us fruit, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.